There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you found this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. It's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. We're going to be talking about leadership, team building, corporate culture, and decision-making with this week's guest, Ben Elmore. Ben is the CEO and managing partner of Intevity, a Burlington, Massachusetts technology firm that develops solutions and technology to drive growth, transform businesses, and make a real impact on people's lives. He's a 20-year industry veteran with an accomplished track record of building teams and leading organizations in service of digital transformation. As a pioneer of emerging technologies and related operating models, Ben was part of a small team that heralded the emergence of Web 2.0. In addition to his business interests, Ben is passionate about working with community and nonprofit groups and supporting disadvantaged youth in the realms of autism and human trafficking. Ben Elmore, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you, Chris. Great to be here. No, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. You founded a company and have been involved in multiple startups. That's something that many people dream of doing, myself included, but never make that leap. What ingredients and what traits go into a successful startup founder? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I kind of laugh because, you know, I got started in, in, in doing startups really early. So back in when I was 20, 19, 20. And so I used to like, and now I look forward now that I, I kind of look at it back through the lens of age. I'm like, you know, it's the question is like, what was I actually thinking in the moment? And so, you know, now I have a, a bit of a different sense, but early on the, you know, what really made me, it's, it kind of, uh, kind of step out for this one is I've kind of an insatiable curiosity to life, you know, and I think that's carried all the way through with it is because I'm always trying to understand like what's over the horizon, what's behind the corner, you know, what could, what is possible if, and I think that most startup founders have that real sense of, of kind of wonder. Um, they also see something that's broken that they think that they can go ahead and provide a new perspective on. Um, and then there's also a little bit of fearlessness on it. You know, I think that um, as I've gotten older, I've learned to sort of um, manage risk well. I think that's a good part about entrepreneurialism is like, is understanding how to calculate risk and manage risk. You know, my early startups and ventures, I could say I didn't have that trait and it, it ended as about as well as you thought it would, which is, is uh, pretty spectacular when the dot-com era busted, my first company busted. Um, so, but you do have to have a bit of fearlessness. You know, you have to kind of have like a, that sense of like, not only do I see a problem, not only see a need in the market, I think I'm the one that can actually step into it. Many people are terrified of technology or at least they only deal with it because they have to. What caused you to run a technology when many people just as soon run the opposite direction? It, that's a, been a point of reflection you know, in my life over the last few years, um, just kind of getting in the age side of it. And what I realized is like my love for technology was born out of the fact that I was exposed to it at such a young age. Um, you know, I, I, I'm very fortunate that my um, my father was in computers. Um, he was one of the, he, he actually was um, responsible for rolling out the ATM systems that we see today. So, um, which meant that, you know, he did, and he did consulting, he ventured into his own thing prior to what we see as a big tech boom of today, which meant that as a kid, I was surrounded by conversations. And then I also had a home personal computer uh, back at the, the second, the second uh, home personal computer was the IBM 8088. And my father encouraged me to actually play on it, um, take it apart, rebuild it and really understand. Um, in fact, he, he I remember if one summer he incented my brother and I is like, hey, if you read all these books about it, you know, I'll go ahead and give you an allowance. And so that kind of like the fascination and then all of a sudden turned into approachability. And once you realize how it's structured, it, it became one of those things that was just really natural for me to play with. So because I just had such a great exposure early, um, it was one of those things that was very natural for me to sort of continue that curiosity into the practical, which I think bodes well for the generation that we're in that just really has kind of live, breathe, eat digital from the beginning. They're not as certainly not as uh, terrified as, as, as uh, some of us that have been farther away from it. <laughs> and the company founded originally Twin Technologies, but now rebranded to what we know today as Intevity, is a consulting company that, quote, specializes in delivering rich internet applications for Fortune 500 companies, unquote. 
Can you put that in simple language for us, please? <laughs> yeah, that's a fun one. So, um, yeah, so our current company, uh, so I founded uh, Twin Technologies about uh, 20, 20 years ago. Um, I know that because my it's named after my twin girls. Um, you know, my wife and I were pregnant when, uh, so my first company had that spectacular flame out. I think all of us, I need to have a failure or two in our life. And, and so, but I did the one thing I knew, which was consulting. And so I said, well, let's back into the foray. I went and, uh, we're sitting there going, what, what do we name the company? And my wife was pregnant and I were pregnant. And we said, well, let's just call it twin technology. So it's easy for me to understand the age based upon my twins. And so that's what 20 years ago. Um, they also try to claim ownership by saying, hey, you named it after us. It means we get it, right? And so I try to explain that doesn't quite count that way. But, um, you know, when we started it, our, our first found, like the way that we, we, we approached the market was through that statement, which was developed, was delivering rich internet applications. As we've gone along, what we realized is like technologies in a constant cycles of change. So back in the 2000, early 2000s, it was rich internet applications. It then came into this whole idea of, you know, customer experience, customer experience management, this, this idea of co uh, commercialization of IT. Um, we then have seen movement of web, uh, sorry, not, not web, but of, of mobile and IoT. And so what you see is this constant state of technology always changing. And so when we started out to be really specialized, which was like, how do we help you leverage this new thing called rich network applications? What we really have turned into is, is that Intevity really focuses on organizations to say, how do we incorporate new technologies, new data and new trends in a way that allows you to grow your profitability or be able to grow your revenue. And so that's what we kind of really think about, you know, what it is that we really do, because that ends up being at the heart of what many, many, many customers or organizations or executives are struggling with, which is like, I see a world of technology. What actually is the handful of things that are actually going to create meaningful results for me? And that's what we do. Here's one of the favorite things I found about you when I was doing my homework. A summary of your biography mentions that you're a futurist. Aside from the obvious, what does a futurist do and how does someone become a futurist? Well, the last part, you know, there's a certification process, which is you just got to put it on your business card and that kind of makes you a futurist. <laughs> makes it official? It makes it official, you know, say it loud, loud enough and long enough and people will believe you. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I, I fell in love with that concept of what is a futurist, um, you know, over the last decade. And, and what I found is like, really what what that that label or that uh, or the moniker means is that someone that really is trying to constantly play forward where things are going you know so i was called like how do you peer you know over the horizon to understand you know if if a plus if a leads to b and b leads to c and c leads to d where's e going and we can watch i find that most um you know most of life is through is is, is trajectories of things you know, there's a saying, which is like, most things are evolutionary, not revolutionary. Occasionally you get something that gets dropped in there that's completely unexpected. But most things, if you take the time to kind of step back and look, you'll find that it is on a glide path. And those glide paths have critical moments, which is like, how does the market embrace it? You know, um, is there a technology uh, threshold that's being, that can be broken through that will allow progression to happen? But what a futurist does is we kind of step back and we try to like really become a student of what's happening. It happened till we can have a good prediction of what's happening, going to happen in the future. And um, and so with that, it really just takes a concept of patience. You know, like, do you like to read? Do you take the time to try to understand the models and patterns that kind of drive what we do? Let's dive into the topic of leadership. You're an adherent to the servant leadership idea. Many people are familiar with servant leadership, but for those who aren't or aren't familiar with its principles, can you explain that for us, please? Yeah, so this is something that's really dear to me on that part, because it's like I found as you as you step into the into a company, and I live in a technology space, but I keep saying at the heart of what we are is still a people company. And so anyone that's led, you know, every organization is made of people made up of, of individuals with individuals' hopes, dreams, and aspirations. And you know what, you know, the classic form you know, of leadership, at least I was exposed to kind of growing up, was a very much a Jack Welch's command and control. This drive for performance, very top down, very much like ruthless, you know, cut the bottom 10%, promote the top 10. And there's some truth about accountability. I totally believe it. But I think that that command and control style has its has certainly some challenges. And what, what's kind of risen from that is this concept of how does someone come alongside and play more of a player coach model with it? And so servant leadership 
really is this concept about leadership in in the in that's done in the service for those that you that you lead. You know, I love it when you know um, if you look at a, a you know a, an org chart. There's always this concept where the CEO sits at the top. And I'll say that as as a you know as a CEO, like I feel the weight of responsibility in the decisions I make, and I don't I don't pass them. But I think that's actually a wrong way of looking at at leadership. It's not about how to look at everyone that reports up to me, but rather it's an inverted pyramid, which is like how as I as a CEO support the success of my broader team in the pursuit of a common goal, you know, um, to create value for our customers. And so that's the really concept of leadership, servant leadership. It's really that shift in terms of recognizing that really success is done through the success of your team. And how did you decide that servant leadership was the right approach for you? Did it just come naturally or was it something you had to learn over time? Yeah, I had a real pivotal moment. Um, I got exposed again, you know, through my father and, and um, to reading some really good books when I was a kid. Um, you know, like they kind of say, what's your, what's your kind of, uh, how did you know you were a nerd? Um, and I'm like, well, I knew I was a nerd, Chris. When my mom would find me in my bedroom um, reading encyclopedia books rather than cleaning, because to me, I found that it was the world of information was just absolutely fascinating. So um, my mom and my dad encouraged me to kind of read and to and to kind of explore that. And so they gave me a couple of good books early on. Uh, one of them was Megatrends 2000. That totally like that shaped my my view and love of the future. Um, Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Phenomenal set. I read that when I was. Um, uh, a junior in high school. And that just reset, it really reset my view on the world. Um, but then I started to read like some Ken Blanchard and some, and some of the more classic management system. And, and what I had was a sense of disappointment. Like when I started to read what you consider more of your, your pre-servant leadership, which is more of your command and control, there's a sense of like, I'm, oh my gosh, I'm never going to be a leader, you know? And, and that's just, that's discouraging as a kid, you know, cause I understand I've, I've gotten, much more self-aware as I've gotten older in life. But I knew and early on is like this idea of dominating others is not my style. Like super, I, I there's a sense of like drive that I have, but I, but I don't have a sense to dominate. It's not because I don't look at life through a zero sum game. Like you winning, Chris, does not, does not prohibit me from. And so I had that moment of like, what am I going to do? Because I'm, I'm reading about leaders that, that, that I don't see myself in. And then I had an opportunity to kind of read one of the first servant leaders that I books I ever read was by John Maxwell. Uh, he had the 21 Inferable Laws of Leadership. Um, he had five levels of leadership. And reading that and having a chance to kind of hear him speak, all of a sudden I realized that there's a new form of leadership that's coming that I actually relate to. One in which we have this concept of about instead of trying to dominate people, it's the concept of being able to win through people. And so that to me has really created that, that sense of like I found now, I think it's one of those things that once you find it in that school of thought, then the question is like, how do I then practice it to sort of be good at what I do? But it was that moment. I still remember that first book. I still remember that sense of despair and that sense of hope that came. And I'm like, there's a new way out there that actually fits who I am. And in the bigger picture, do you think servant leadership is a trait or a behavior? Mm, man, all the good questions for that one. You know, I think it's one of those things that anyone can learn. You know, I really believe that it's one of those concepts for it. You know, I think there is, you know, the, so I would say that's more of a learned behavior for it. I think we probably has, as, as what I found with people, we all have predispositions towards things, you know, um, you know, it's going to be like, are you a people person or are you a things person, you know, you task driven, people driven. I think that just kind of sets the baseline of where you start. But I think this idea of being a servant leader is something that you can learn over time. And it's certainly a, a characteristic and behavior of your style. And can the role of servant leader really work for all people in every workplace, regardless of their age, gender, ethnicity? I think so. Um, you know, I, I was at an incredible leadership conference last week, and we heard from, uh, you know, um, Admiral McCraven, who, who ran the, the uh, SEAL teams. And you listen to him, and they're still servant leaders. He preaches servant leadership in probably one of the most, you know, structured environments that you can which is the military. And, and I think that it has to, you know, sometimes the military can get a bad rep, government can get a bad rep, but realizing that, you know, I still think about like, where else can you take 2 million individuals and focus them on one Pacific goal? That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. But what you see is a concept of a servant leader and the military can show great examples of it um, where there, there is this concept of sacrifice for one another, it gets embedded into the training and so on. And that's an element of, 
of, of, um, of servant leadership. It's we above me. And um, I've seen a servant leadership within, within professional sports environments. Now, the way that the actual rituals and practice, so accountability structure, like the processes of an organization, those will absolutely change. But a way that a leader leads through those processes and systems can all can can be servant can be a servant driven leader um, in any environment that I've seen. Aaron Craven is a great example. Uh, he gave a commencement speech at the University of Texas about I don't know six or seven years ago, which is one of the greatest speeches I've ever seen. So I highly recommend if you haven't seen or listened to it, look it up on YouTube. Um, yeah, good few for seeing him. He's just a phenomenal human being. Yeah, and incredibly inspiring. So much we can just learn just from 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 those examples of it. But at the heart of him, he's a servant. Yep, exactly. Every leadership style has its pros and cons. What are some other potential pitfalls or shortcomings of servant leadership and how can we avoid or overcome them? Yeah, I think that's really good. You know, I, I find that everything is sits in concept of tensions, like this idea of futuristic is like, how do you play things forward? I think I have a saying that everything in an extreme is bad, right? So one of the downsides that I've seen in servant leadership is this concept of, of entitlement that comes that can, that can come where you can, there is this concept about, you know, uh, we above me, that's an exact thing, but servant leadership also be coupled with a really strong sense of accountability. And I think if you stop that accountability concept struck, what you do is you erode your credibility within the teams that you're leading. Um, there's a fun saying from one of my, from my dear men, from my, your mentors. He's like, you know, Ben, culture is the worst behavior you accept. It can be defined as the worst behavior you accept. And you're like, well, that's actually really crappy. Thanks a lot. Right. But the good news is culture can also be created by the, by the, the decisions that you make. There's actually a positive side of that. And as servant leaders, when you realize is like the decisions and choices we make behavior, we choose not to accept, which is really what function of standards and accountabilities are actually create thriving cultures. So I think that, you know, the leadership style of being a servant leader, people will mistake that as in like, I'm going to sacrifice the well-being and the health of an organization to cater to the, the, the whims and needs of a single individual. Caring for somebody does not mean that we just say yes to all of them. Caring for someone is to say that when I say no to you, I, I understand the weight of the impact. And, you know, we call that an, an integrity being human first. It means that we are kind even when we are and mindful, even when we're taking, we're saying no, and even when we're doing things such as dismissals, even when we're sort of like, like it doesn't mean that we're not, kindness isn't weakness. And I think sometimes servant leadership can kind of like leaders feel like I have to be, I have to be weak um, or I have to be catering. And can you share more of the plus side of servant leadership? For instance, does it make it easier to create consensus on a team? Oh man, there's so many. Like I, I don't think our show is long enough to really talk about the benefits of what we can see here. You know, I think from a from a from a pro perspective is like you get a chance to see people thrive. There's something about watching someone be able to become um, and 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 uh, become better than they ever thought they could. Someone to be able to sort of achieve professional success, like the goal idea of everyone wants personal, uh, professional, and financial success in their lives. Servant leadership allows us to get to know our team members and say, "How do I come alongside you in pursuing your goals in the context of the goals that we have?" And so. There is, there's nothing more, nothing more exciting for me to watch somebody that, that, you know, grow in their professional life and to see that benefit and that wake of, 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 um, of what that win creates in, inside of them. And for the most part, the COVID pandemic has subsided now, but a lot of people are still working remotely, myself included. Do servant leaders have to do things differently in a virtual setting than they do in person? Hmm. That's a good, that's a really good question, Chris. Um, when I think about, you know, dealing with COVID, I, I don't necessarily go from a leadership style. I think as, as like, um, what I recognize is like, what is the, how does the organization have to be structured to work remotely successfully for the long term? You know, this pandemic has really been a, um, you know, when I kind of look at it, there's this, there's this weariness and fatigue that's kind of come over employees. And so as servant leaders, we have to really take on the, the responsibility of kind of understanding where our teams are at and recognizing that in a, in a sustained sense of in a sustained, a sustained environment of uncertainty and stress, we're going to see fatigue and, and a lot of mental uh, mental health concerns emerge from our team members. And so I would say that that the concept of caring and being present with your teams and understanding like where they're at and where they need to go, like that that concept of winning through them and knowing them, that part remains constant. But I'll say COVID has created a new set of challenges that all leaders need to recognize. Um, and so that, um, 
you know, when we look at, at, at what does it take for us to kind of really drive a remote com- remote organization, um, you know, we've been, we've been very fortunate that I've started um, all my companies to be completely virtual. I don't have any physical locations. Um, you know, we rent space when we need to. And so what I found is like as to run a virtual organization is different than if I was running a, an organization in the, where everyone had strong proximity. And so that, that to me is more of an interesting, you know, when we break, which is like, is to say like there's a leadership style that can kind of transcend different organizational structure, but virtual organization are a structure by themselves and they rely on different sets of things to be successful. You know, physical locations require proximity um, to create positive peer pressures and positive expectation setting and rapid communication, where if you're in remote environments, what it requires us to do is to really have strong trust models, strong KPI outcome-based management systems, and a, a high degree of proactivity to ensure that we don't see the lag that being distanced from each other creates. Um, but yeah, it's it's a COVID has certainly created a, a lot of different challenges between virtual settings and in-person. And you talked about the, how the dynamics of teams have changed in team building. Do you think these changes are permanent? And if so, are they for the better or the worse? Hmm. Yeah, I think that I'm, I'm a little worried about a few things um, inside of that environment. You know, I think there is a, uh, well, there's a couple of things that I've noticed on this piece. And, and so I'm still forming some of my opinions. So you're hearing them a little in the raw. I hope that's, a, I hope that's all right. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> you know, so one of the things that I found is that teams that were already tight together grew together during the pandemic because they're learning how to lean into each other and to kind of carry probably at a deeper level. Like all of us probably had a bad day, um, whether it be in work or in our communities. Because what happened is a lot of us that were in a position of influence and, and resourcing and leadership had to lead out a lot more externally than we did internally. And that creates fatigue. It doesn't mean it means you're never off, right? You got to like lead your kids in school. You got to lead through the uncertainty. You might have a family, distant family member that lost a job or, or that sort of thing. So that kind of bound, the really grounded people together. What I found that's difficult is that is like the new individuals of organizations by large and far feel outside of the organization. And so what that's done is it's created less less camaraderie and less loyalty. Now I'm not a blind loyalty fan. Like I think that's a silly thought, that's a silly thing to, to expect. You know, there's this concept about interdependent by choice that I just love to think about. People choosing to be committed to one another because they choose to be, not because they're forced to be. And that's what true sense of loyalty is, is like we've committed to each other because we're committed to each other. Um, but I think that that dynamic of like, well, because I actually don't know you, I'm not in proximity. I haven't actually built trust and relate relational trust between us because distance. And I think that you're seeing a lot of dynamics of teams suffering from like additions that they haven't had a chance to really build. Um, and especially if you're not set up for remote organizations like we are, where we, we purposely take activities to build trust and build relational equity, because we know ultimately when there's not, when there's, when misunderstandings draw on trust. You know, lack of information draws on trust. And if there's no already, if there's no trust, the relational trust and equity in place, then typically people go to the worst. And I think that dynamic is really, is I'm seeing that kind of pervasive. So people have this sense of flightiness, like there's no long-term commitment to each other. And I think that's this concept of, of, um, uh, of, what, of what being in a sustained virtual environment does. You have a 20-year track record of team building. For many of our listeners, their place on a team and ability to work within that team are crucial factors in their success and advancement. What advice do you have for people to be good team players and yet still be able to get ahead? Man, I, I kind of think through this. There's always there's some standard advice that I always give. And so I'll, I'll, I found them to be pretty true, um, the map, even over the years. You know, the first thing I look at if you're on a team, what I what I look at is the kind of two things about it is one is understand the, the mission of the team, the goal of the team, right? Orient yourself around how do we make the team successful? How do we make the leader of the team successful? Very rarely do I find, you know, as, as you know, as leadership can be a little on the lonely side. And, um, you know, the things that excite me the most is when, a, is when a member of my team comes alongside and says, Ben, how do we, how do I help you progress the goal forward? Like, how do I sort of alleviate some of the burdens that you that you might be carrying? And I think that's a really great way for you to sort of embed yourself within it. It's like understanding the, the, the mission of the leader, which is told only the missions of the team, because it allows you to orient yourself towards the thing that matters. This isn't manipulation. What this is, is this alignment. And so there's a big difference between those two things. So the first thing you get into a team is get aligned. 
I think then the second part I recommend on the team is get to know the strength of your team members and understand the adjacent teams that you're working on. Because no one in life works alone. You know, it's the misunderstanding of, of it, even like you build, when we build great software, you know, it's like we typically are entering someone's life at, as part of a journey of something they're trying to accomplish. And I need to kind of pull back enough to recognize is like, are, am I the first step of many? Am I the third step of many? Am I the last step of many? And if I don't understand where I am within context, then what I'm doing is I'm making a lot of assumptions that are going to prove false and, and, and you don't get that, that, that runway or that, that exit ramp onto or on-ramp onto a freeway. So I think about that idea of, I was like, always understand your adjacent team's goals and ask questions like, how do we hand the ball off to you in an effective way? How do we collaborate effectively? Then my last advice I give someone is like, how do you just get ahead, right? And I give this advice to everyone even coming out of high school. I'm like, in order to get ahead, you have to be willing to do one thing more than everyone else. Like, that's it. Like, actually, I think my, my recipe for success is pretty straightforward. You know, you hear like you got to outwork and out tough and that. And I'm like, all right, that's true. But that actually starts much simpler than that one. Just be willing to do one thing more a day than anyone else is willing to do. And over time, you're going to get a compounded return on your time. So I always try to do that, that concept of like find those things. And, um, and, and that will just sort of start to separate because results have a way of, of generating notice, attention, and then that ultimately that's going to be for more opportunity and more opportunity tends to lead to more advancement. We've been talking to Ben Elmore and we'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. The White House Doctor Makes House Calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. If you're struggling to understand your self-worth or deal with mental health challenges, you will want to tune into Your Life Matters Today with Dr. Cliff Robertson. Dr. Cliff and his guests will help you understand and work toward what you need to build your best life. Your Life Matters Today. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to Chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. We're with this week's guest, Ben Elmore. Ben is the CEO and managing partner of the tech firm Intevity and a 20-year industry veteran with an accomplished track record of building teams and leading organizations. We've been talking about leadership, team building, and other workplace topics. So Ben, we were talking before the break about employees who are underappreciated and unrecognized. Many people suffer in silence or complain to coworkers, friends, family. What should we do if we're feeling underappreciated or unrecognized? Yeah. You know, I think that's one of those, my observations that I've, that I've found over the years leading to people. And it's kind of led, um, is that most folks haven't really been cared for, celebrated, appreciated, uh, in their lives. Like most of us don't feel that. Um, and I think that, that what that means is like we, as, as, a, as, as leaders, as, as organizations have a really unique opportunity 
to really sort of differentiate ourselves in the minds of of um, or differentiate ourselves from the from the from the from our competitors by actually sort of tapping into what I would consider as a core need for most individuals. And so I find that that model really is is uh, is important for us to really embrace. And and by because if we can just tap into that concept of need, you know, of that of that felt need, what that does is it creates this kind of sense of commitment for it. You know, I think in terms of like the how does individuals kind of feel with that, I think it's first recognizing that sense of 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 need. You know, so if, if we're going to go back into from an employee perspective, is like sometimes there's a there's an adage which is a, this kind of suck it up and deal with it. And I think that you know we're starting to see, and the pandemic's brought it on. I also think some of our our kind of our youngest generation right now, um, you know, your Gen Zs are really being willing to sort of talk more about the way that they feel and the way they experience life. And I think there's a lot we can learn from that. I think you can take it overboard. You know, I think so there's a bit about, you know, um, there is such thing as adversity, which does build character, which is not a bad thing, but that's what goes back to the whole construct of tensions. Like I got to be honest about what I'm feeling. And I also got to put in what I'm feeling within context, you know, um, just because you feel it doesn't always mean it's true, but because you feel it, you should recognize that it's, it, you're, there's an element of truth for you. So I think that's kind of like the way I, I think about it when I'm when I'm working one on one in that basis. And I think from a leadership perspective is about kind of um, that ability to sort of pause for a moment and be able to sort of um, check in with your with your team members, know and get a sense for 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 how they feel and being able to then sort of meet them where they're at on that part about saying is like recognizing that that's that's tough from both a personal and professional level and really ask that simple question is like, how how can I help you in this moment it goes a really long way. We're hearing a lot these days about a new phenomenon called quiet quitting. Is quiet quitting really all that new? Well, you know, I, I was, um, I, I, I attribute this to very much like you all seen these bomb cyclones and these, you know, big weather reports, they start to name things. And like someone once said, isn't that just called bad weather? You know, like, so we definitely have, you know, um, our industries are guilty about sort of like um, marketing everything. And so uh, I would say that quiet quitting is really um, a new name for something that we've all struggled with. You know, like we used to call about slacking off. We used to call like people are phoning at home. You know, like there's these, every generation, you know, every kind of cycle, business cycle has had a new name for really of talking about this problem. And so what I look at quiet quitting really is, is this concept of, of, of it's, it really goes around this concept of employee engagement. Every organization is trying to really is asking themselves, how do I create a culture that really drives as deep engagement with with my employees? And what we do is sometimes what you see is you see peaks where all of a sudden you you watch, um, you know, that become kind of noticed by the industry. When I say the industry, like the workplace, like, man, more and more people are not engaging with their work. What's going on? And I think that's something that we we are kind of wrestling with. But by by and large, this isn't new, you know. Uh, I heard a good quote that says, you know, unpre- the, the concept of unprecedented only comes from those that are not informed by history. Because very rarely do things, so they're not revolutionary. Most things are evolutionary. Most things are secular. You talked about caring for people, and that seems to be one way of, of a solution anyway. What's the best way or ways to build a corporate culture that really cares for people? Yeah, I think that what I found in is is one of the, the best ways of really addressing this quiet this quiet quitting construct is is really try to think about like how do I create a culture in which we are able to create a high level of engagement with with it, and so what I realized is like and so the model that I've been been driving off of for for the companies that I've I've created is this concept of about how do I create an environment in which in which there is mutual commitment to one another. Because I found that there's never anyone on my team that's not willing to give it all when they realize that I'm willing to give it all as well. When we're able to sort of figure out, like, we're not across the table from each other, but we're on the same side of the table looking towards a, a future. And I think those models are the healthiest teams, right? The, the, teams that are, the teams that are able to go ahead and say, you know, Chris, I'm committed to your success 100%. And in return, I'm asking for you to be committed to our success 100%, not even to me, but to the goal that we're going for. And I think that that is a, and that has to then be both said, and it has to sort of be backed by action. So how does it the things that we can do for that one? So I think like one of the ways that I'm able to guarantee success for folks is to make sure that I'm always being mindful around compensation. I think that's a big thing. You know, I'd say success tends to come into three lens. People look at it through professional success, financial success, and personal success. And so making sure that I'm able to say like, here's how I'm going to be, you know, and you you do need to have flexibility in all three. Like if I got the idea of like, I want to get paid a ton of money, 
you know, I want to get promoted and I don't want to do any time in, you know, I want to have all my time. It's like, all right, well, let's, let's have a reasonable conversation about what's possible. But what I'm able to do is at least recognize that those are things that you're going after. Let me help you understand the things that, you know, Intevity is going after. And how do we find those two things that can work in harmony together? And then how do we go ahead and show that we're willing to sort of make that commitment to each other? Because the model only works when we're both willing to be, we're both willing to work it. And we're both willing to be committed to each other and hold each other accountable. So what I always tell my team members, like, if, if, you, if, if these values that I'm espousing, right, if these commitments I'm making, if there's ever a time where you feel like I'm not living up to those, that I'm not following through on those, you have just the right to call me out and say, Ben, that's not what you said you were going to do. And I have the ability to sort of either help you understand why, or I'll, I'll own it you know, to you. And I said, in, in contrast, I'm going to say that whenever I hear there's a commitment that you're not making, we're going to have a conversation about it because we are committed to building something together. We're committed to see each other be successful. So that sort of model, what it does, is it shows, it, it respects both parties, right? And so that whole idea of being appreciated, celebrated, respected, and shown excellence that all can get shown in that model. And I find that those environments, are those, those characteristics tend to, tend to produce the highest performing environments that I've got a chance to see. Unfortunately, some leaders just aren't people persons. They're more focused on process than people and feelings. Is it possible for them to fake their way through caring? You know, can they say the right words and yet not expend their own emotional energy? Uh-huh. That's a fun one. Um, <laughs> Like here's my my secret confession that now is not out for the world. Um, I don't necessarily view myself as a people person. Like I found like all my tests have come like in terms of like now I I care for people. So I guess I could say that I care. I'm a people carer at least. But I realize that if we look at if you look at all my personality profiles, I tend to be I tend to be more about the thing like the goal. I tend to be very goal oriented. I tend to be very task oriented. I move towards moving us to a goal, where sometimes I'm not actually able to kind of pause. So that same advice that I gave you, I'm just first point of confession. It's actually not a natural motion for me. So, you know, so when, when you say, can people be a, that aren't naturally people, people, uh, people, persons, can they? My answer is yes, because that's me. And so what I've learned to do is to sort of recognize that I care for people. I do. But recognizing that in my, you know, in my pursuit, like the way I, I build relationships is in accomplishing something like if you and I were going to get to get know each other, we're going to do that because we're going to climb a mountain together. Because we're going to we're going to go ahead and build a company together. We're going to go ahead and accomplish the un, the 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 unimaginable together. And that's the way I build relationships. And so I've kind of realized that's my leadership style. But and so what would be an authentic for me was to try to go ahead and be uh, was to not recognize that right is to say. And so if I was to go ahead and pretend to be someone that was always bubbly, that someone was always kumbaya, highly charismatic, right? It, like. Like these sort of things, like you'd be like, Ben, that's not authentic. You're faking it, right? You're saying the right words. You're spending all that sort of stuff. It's, it's not, it's missing. Why? Because it's not me. But what I've recognized, what is me is like, I do care for people and I've learned to care for people in a certain way. And then I put people around me that I say, I have a buddy of mine. I say, Chris, you know, I thought I loved people until I met you. And I realized how far off I was. <laughs> and he laughs about it. And I'm like, but that's, but it's great. Now I have you on the team to help me. So you'll, you'll, he'll, and in, in my companies, I'll he'll interrupt me. He's like, Ben, pause for a moment. I'm like, gotcha. I understand the cue. And it's like, sit with the team for a moment. And that's just about allowing myself to be vulnerable, to recognize, like, I understand that it's important because I, not because I just, it checks a box and makes a, you know, makes good business sense because I actually do want to see people succeed. I've just had to learn that I have to make sure that I'm doing it in ways that they'll learn and receive it, not just the way that I tend to do it. You've also said that's important to celebrate people. What's the proper way to celebrate people and when should the leader or team do it? Mm. So I think that means something different from everybody. You know, I think that there's, there's different um, ways in which people are motivated. And I think about uh, part of becoming a leader is to understand what is the things that, that um, the team that I'm leading for looks for, right? Where do they, where do they find that depth of, 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 um, uh, of a, where do they find that words of appreciation that could come into play? So I think it really does come in by um, it comes in, individuals look for it differently. And I think, so it starts with this concept of saying, we want to celebrate. So a couple of things that I, that I found that are, are ways that we've done it. And these are just some ideas every, well, first it starts with recognizing that you need, that you need to do it and you want to do it authentically. So much of life, whether it be parenting, whether it be, you know, marriage and, you know, whether it be leadership, is actually just being intentionally present. 
Like if you can get, I always tell, you know, new, we have five kids. And so they're like, give me good advice on the kids. I'm like, show up. Like if you just do there, you're so much further ahead than, than you'll be if you just choose to be disengaged. So leadership is showing up and helping them. Like, I want to celebrate people. That intention alone will get you a long way. But here's some practical ways that I found for, for celebrating people. One is like, I give stages and platforms for people, for peers to celebrate each other. There's nothing, there's something about, about when a leader comes in and does it. And I definitely don't take it away from when I, I, you know, when I do it, I tend to do it very privately. I tend to go and reach out to them and say, hey, this one thing that you've done has really made a difference in the business. And I want you to know that. So I find that a lot of the praise that I give tends to be very specific and very one-on-one, but I love public praise of peers because it's allowing the company to celebrate something they saw that was amazing and awesome inside of them. And so we, we have that, you know, on our quarterly, you know, all hands for it. We have sessions where people are nominated by their business unit. They're spotlighted at a company level. And we say, what is the values that, that we espouse that they are living out and demonstrating? What's the way that they changed your, they, they made your work better? And I think that's a, a way that it's just like, and sometimes it's emotional for folks because I just, they just realize like, you've seen me in my, you've seen me do the work when I thought no one noticed. And so that can be really powerful. One of the, one of the powerful, those are two powerful ways that I found that celebrating people can be done. I love those. Thank you for sharing those. Those are fantastic. You know, you and I spoke last week. You know, we see a bunch of articles out there. First of all, you hear about the economy going to recession. Then you hear the same argument of there's a real dogfight for talent. Now, how can the things we've been talking about, servant leadership, creating a culture that cares for people, celebrating people, become a real differentiator for attracting and growing the talent that you need? Yeah. There's an old adage that says money matters until it doesn't. And so what that kind of does is it, it really kind of shows that that last 10% on the decisioning process is culture. It's like people want to work on with people that they like because who you work with is going to, who you're going to spend the majority of your time, time with more than you'll do with your family. And so we recognize that, you know, so when I make a, like, so when I go from a talent perspective and, and there is a real fight for talent today, but the, our basic message when we go ahead and attract is to say that here's what we're going to do we're going to work on really interesting problems. Like I'm committed because I don't want to work on boring stuff, right? I want to work on the, in fact, what gets me excited the most when you tell me something can't get done. Like we're going to work on really hard stuff that's going to really matter for our clients and it's going to make a real impact for them. Um, that also means that we turn down work that we think it doesn't have actually, you know, some sort of good that we can generate through it. We're very mindful about the work we take. The second is we're very mindful on who we have. So like, Chris, you're going to work with some amazing people that are just as passionate and just as talented as you that are committed to growing and growing with you. You know, and so I, I make these kind of promises, you know, to the to the team members. And I'm like, this is what you're going to get. And I'm, I'm going to be very mindful about ensuring I'm giving you growth opportunities and that my and my compensation strategy is constantly paying you in a very competitive state. So I'm, I'm bringing that to the table with them. And it's like, this is what we're this is what we have. And either you're going to really love it because we work hard. Right? There is like a, there's no doubt about it. Like we also we, we have a concept of like. I say, if, if you're having to pull all-nighters, if you have genuine heroics, it's typically bad. It's a, it's a heroics is a sign of bad planning. It's not necessarily a cultural thing. We do not believe in heroics at Intevity. We think that is a we we have failed as leaders if we are causing our teams to be sustained burns on anything. But so we make those common combinations. Is like we're like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and work on some problems with great people. We're gonna be um, we're gonna be financially successful together about it. And then what we're going to do is we're going to respect you as a whole person, both what you do and working outside of work. That tends to draw people all the way in because they're recognizing like they're seeing fully in what they're looking, looking to get done. And that allows us to kind of get that last 10%. And I'm saying, if you want to go ahead and make that maximize every ounce that you can make, this might not be the place. And I'm okay with that because what I look at is like what I bring to the table is far outpaces and far surpasses than what you're going to get just purely as salary and open market. And sticking with the talent shortage concepts and this may or may not be the right place for you, it can be very hard to find the right people because many people who interview for a job seem to be very good at telling prospective employer exactly what they want to hear. I'm, I'm guilty of that as well. Your team is described as passionate, quote, thinkers and doers. Yes. How do you find passionate thinkers and doers? And what can the rest of us do to find those people? Uh yeah, that's a good, that's a fun question on that one too. Um, you know, I think what I found a few things about it is like one is that good people find good people. You know, we're we're you know we're a boutique uh, firm, 
And so that means that we're, you know, we're, we're looking to grow right with the right people and the right, and the right customers. And so we definitely, one of the benefits we have is choice. Um, we take a long time hiring. Um, I, I will say that from a hiring perspective, um, if you compromise in your hiring, um, you'll, you'll, you've never, it, it tends to have long-term consequences within your culture and your work. So, you know, from an employee employer perspective, it's like, take the time to find the right people, even when the market's tough, right? Recognize that, that a bad hire will create more costs than waiting. So that's one aspect of it, you know, and the same thing I would say for employers, employees is like, know what you're looking for from your culture, know what you're looking for for your career and be patient. Finding the right fit where you're able to sort of, what it does is it creates maximum value creation, which is ultimately what the path for growth comes from. Because growth has to come through value creation. You know, there's not this concept of like, we're just going to like, it's not, there's no just sort of magic, you know, more, more happens just because we just constantly done the same. It's because we're growing together, create space for growth. So I always want to make sure that we're looking through that. So I find that we, we um, communicate stories, storytelling about the types of, of employees that we've had, having employees introduce, you know, others, and then just having a really good recruiting team that this has learned to sort of filter, filter well. Um, we certainly have uh, dialed in our, our job descriptions where we talk a lot about our culture. Too many organizations focus on qualifications first rather than what's the qualities of a person I'm looking for. So those are just some of the techniques that we found that gets us gets us in the door and 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 the in the insight into the process that we use that works for us. And even passionate thinkers and doers can lose motivation. Mm -hmm. How do you motivate an underperforming team member and get them back on the right track? Well, yeah. well, I think there is this there is this uh, the reality is like all of it's about energy management in many ways. You know, so there's a couple of things that happen for that one. I think if you're asking for team members to be in high sustained burns over a long period of time, you're, you're going to fatigue them out. You know, you're going to burn them out. And so this this concept about making sure that you're like, um, so I'd say that that's, that's kind of the general start. What I'd like to get to is like when I'm seeing someone that's reaching burnout, I, I like to kind of understand what's the motivation that's causing that's causing said burnout. Sometimes what they're dealing with is some real challenging stuff at home. And, and this idea of like people bring their home with them. Now they don't always talk about it, but whatever's happening at home will affect work and, and vice versa, which is why we're always trying to say like, how do we create an environment that grows employees? Cause that actually creates a lot of long-term benefit for, for their home life too. But some, but there's things that are all challenging in our lives. So the first thing I look at when I'm trying to just, when I'm, when I'm taking a high performer, that's not performing anymore, I'm trying to look for a couple things off the top. One is something materially changed in their life that, that they don't have to tell me about always. Not everyone, I don't kind of violate that, but I want to realize like, Chris, I'm for you, you know, and if something's going on, help me understand so I can go ahead and get, create the space that you need in order to be, because part of a mutual commitment model is like you, when you need the time, take the time, because when we need the time, we're going to ask for the time, you know? So we want to make sure that we realize like, so just sometimes you're giving and sometimes you're receiving and like, what can I do in that moment? So that's the first thing that we do. The second one I might look at is, having a conversation about the work, they might not see in a variety. So like, hey, I've been on a project for over a year, I'm looking for something new. So there's a motivation on the professional level. It could be the fact like, hey, I'm under, I'm in a sustained burn for a long period of time, I need a break, you know? And so sometimes like, even when we have good cultures, we're like, hey, we call it pulling the line. You see something, just tell us, right? Um, and I think letting people know that and rewarding and telling stories about how someone raised their hand and said, those are great ways of kind of reinforcing that behavior. But when they do, that moment allows us to say, hey, you, you haven't pulled the line. You've, kind of, you've been carrying this a little bit longer than you need to, and now it's showing up that you've lost your passion. How do I right-size the team? How do I give you the space that you need to in order for us to kind of win together? So that kind of taking that moment to come alongside uh, a team member that's doing that and not immediately come down from a performance perspective, but from a place of empathy. That's that leadership side. Like, help me understand so that I can go ahead and see our way and, and come alongside you and see our way out of this. That mindset is the greatest way I found to be able to really re-energize a passionate, uh, someone that was passionate that has lost it. Earlier on the show, you mentioned John Maxwell, and he's often referred to as America's top authority on leadership. Yeah. He and his brother, along with a group of Christian leaders in 1996, established a not-for-profit organization called Equip to provide leadership skills to Christian men and women in other countries and academic and urban communities. You've traveled to Africa and Turkey to teach leadership skills as part of that endeavor. How and when were you chosen for that mission and why did you agree to do it? Well, Chris, you do really great research here, which I appreciate. We have a good so, team. Good team. Um, 
Yeah, you know, I tend to, the way that I work is, uh, is that I tend to react to what's been given to me. So here's what I mean by that. Like, like I, I had a chance to really listen to John Maxwell very early on and had it have a material change in my life, right? So I've been marked by his generosity and his leadership. So when I, when I see that, and I have, I have a handful of advisors, I have Yang Gun Chan, I have uh, Ranji Thomas, Rob Hoskins, uh, Dave Matina, some great, great leaders in my life that have, that have invested in me. I don't know how, like for me, that's a response back to them is to sort of to honor them in a way. And so for me, it was a very easy thing when he threw that out and said, here's what we're looking to do is to say, I appreciate what was given. How do I give? And so that got me involved through that construct. Um, and then I just like, so it's, it's the, the program itself is pretty interesting. It was completely volunteer. Um, not only did we, you know, did we go teach this, we paid our own way and we paid into the foundation to make sure that all the material the people were teaching with. So I really do believe that leadership and education are pathways of growth uh, for people. And so that's the one way that we can sort of allow an individual that's in a, in a different um, social economic scenario, um, someone that's hungry to be able to find, you know, success in a, in a life is by giving them access to good education and good leadership. And just as your lessons on leadership changed others and helped them to grow, your experiences in Africa and Turkey had to have an effect on you. How did they change you? Yeah, they did. You know, I find that perspective in life is important, right? I think you always need context, you know, like sitting with someone and say, this is what it is. And you need perspective so that you can understand like, like life, 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 life will be and could be different. And so I found that working in both of those scenarios have given me a tremendous appreciation for the, the giftings and opportunities that I have. You know, it, it, I don't feel regret. I don't feel like the sense of, uh, you know, um, uh, of, of, of guilt about where I'm at but I definitely have a deep sense of appreciation for it. And I think also going over there has really reinforced this concept, I believe about like about going and serving others that can give you nothing in return. You know, I think the best consultants are the best listeners and you, and the best way to learn listening is serving. And so there's this really this affinity about like, you know, uh, how I've grown. I think the way that I've harnessed and grown my skills um, as a leader, the way that I've done it as a professional, um, the way I do it is from a business leader is they're really understanding like serving creates list, you know, consulting comes through this idea of listening, listening is best learned through serving, best taught through serving. And Elmore, thank you for being with us today. It's an absolute pleasure. And thank you, our audience, for joining us for this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure and on Twitter at ChrisMeek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.